are innumerable uh, buzzwords that are kicking about the contemporary church, the modern church just now. And they're buzzwords. We've got words like missional, uh, words like Christ-centeredness, words like intentional. And uh, I suppose chief amongst those buzzwords is the word gospel. Like, we hear that used in different contexts all the time in the church. Like, gospel living. People are gospel-saturated or gospel people. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Of course, there's nothing wrong with that. That that word, gospel, is a beautiful word and it's a God-given word. Now, I wonder, though, having said that, do you see the danger that we've got? When a word like that is so is used so readily or when a word like gospel is used so widely the danger is that the meaning of the word can come become a bit diluted you know that if we're using a word like that in different contexts within the church the danger is that we can misunderstand it or the meaning of the word to us can, can be slightly changed slightly altered well in Zechariah chapter 3 We've got a portion of scripture here that can help provide clarity with what exactly constitutes the gospel. Even as I I say that, uh, don't get me wrong, obviously I'm not saying that this chapter that we've read or that Paul's read, I'm not saying that this gives us an exhaustive definition of the good news of, 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 of salvation. not saying that. What I am saying is that in these verses, what we find are indispensable truths that must be included in a biblical definition of the good news of salvation. Indispensable truths here that we find in Zechariah chapter 3. So with that said, if you've not done so already, please have Zechariah chapter 3 open in front of you. Let's think about the first thing that we see here. Let's think about the crisis of iniquity. The crisis of iniquity. Okay. By now, we know surely at least something of the historical reality, the historical setting that we're dealing with when we're looking at the book of Zechariah. Like the, the people of Israel have returned to the promised land, returned from captivity. And they have returned, and as they've returned, God has given them a message. And it's a message that has come through the prophet Zechariah, and it has come by way of this series of night visions that Zechariah has here. Now, I wonder, do you see how this vision differs from all the other ones that we've looked at so far. See how it's different? Like, when you think about all the other visions, what's, where's Zechariah been standing? Like, what has Zechariah's vantage point been with all these? If you think about it, has he not been standing outside the city of Jerusalem? He has, hasn't he? You think about that, that has been his vantage point. Like, he's been able to look down into the valley and to see all the myrtle trees and the horses and all that, hasn't he? Been outside the city. He's been able to look across to the city and to see the, you know, the guy with the measuring line sort of measuring the walls. He's been outside the city. Now that's different to this, isn't it? 
Where is Zechariah here? Do you see what his vantage point is? He is now in glory. That's what he is. Zechariah, at this point, he is viewing this in the heavenly realms. And I, I honestly think that tonight, because of that, we should be thanking God. Because as he so often does, what God has done is join our morning service and our evening service at LCPC uh, to, together. Do you see how? Zechariah is not just in the heavenly realms. Zechariah is in the heavenly courtroom. We had a trial scene this morning. We have another tri- trial scene this evening. Zechariah is in the heavenly court. Now, because of that, we've really got to look to see and think about who's, who's ta- who are the players in this courtroom in the trial scene. We look at verse 1. Who's the defendant? It's this man called Joshua. Now, okay, who's, who's Joshua? Joshua is a guy who's come back from Babylon and he's come back to Jerusalem, okay? That's fine. But notice what the role is. Do you see who he is? This man, Joshua, is the high priest. Now, that's significant. Man, that's significant. Do you see why it's significant if he's a high priest? The high priest was a representative role. So that means that the defendant here isn't just Joshua, who's on trial. He's the high priest. He's representing all the people of God here are on trial in the heavenly court. Okay, so you've got him. Who's the judge? Do you see it? Joshua is standing before the angel of the Lord. So we've got a court case where the Lord God Almighty is presiding. He's the judge in this court case. And then most especially, I need you to see who the prosecution is here. Look at that. Who is in verse 1? We've got Satan. Now we've got the devil. The devil acting as prosecution here. Now, okay, the devil, the evil one, is described in the Bible in a whole host of different ways. Isn't he? I'm sure, if you think about it, you're already thinking some of the the devil is described in scripture what would you go for like the father of lies let's go for that or lion you know roaming around ready to devour what i need you to see here is that that name that he is given in zechariah chapter three very special name literally that means sin it means the adversary So we're seeing here that this evil one, this devil, this prosecutor at this point, he is God's adversary. He is God's enemy. And man, do we see this here in this trial? Because look what we are told Satan is doing here. Do you see it? He is standing by and what's he doing? He is accusing Joshua. Accusing him. Do you see that? He is accusing God's high priest. I mean, he is accusing God's beloved, God's chosen people. Now, Satan, we know, is wicked. Surely we know that. We know he is evil. What I need you to see and understand is at this point here, Satan and his accusations are legitimate, aren't they? Because think about Joshua. What have we read? Joshua is standing there dressed in the filthy garments of sin. 
He's standing there in iniquity before God. This is, this is legitimate. Satan is, is, is as though he is saying to God, God, okay, you want to bless these people as they come back to the promised land? You want to, okay, you want to build up Jerusalem? You want to prosper these people? But you can't. You are holy. Look at these people. They are wicked. They are sinful, dressed in these horrible garments. You cannot tolerate sin. Now, I think there's a couple of things we need to pick out of this, okay? One, we see something of Satan's role and his desire for you. Satan is our accuser. Satan thrives on accusing mankind, humanity, of sin. Like we're saying here that, okay, he's Satan, he is God's adversary. I want you to add to that. I want you to see that he is also your adversary. He thrives on accusing mankind of sin before God. That's one thing. Second, we come face to face here with the legitimacy of those accusations against us. I mean, just, just as Joshua is here, All humanity is clothed in iniquity before God. That is how we have come into the world. And as here, God, what does he desire for mankind? He desires the same things, doesn't he? Like God wants to accept people. Like God wants to build up Jerusalem. God wants people to come to him in Jesus Christ. He wants to prosper them, to build them up. And do you see the stumbling block here? There is this stumbling block of sin. Now, As this chapter moves on, we are going to (laughs) see, we are going to see how God rescues Joshua from this predicament. I mean, what does he call him here? He says he is a, Joshua is a a, a stick snatched from the fire. And we are going to see this. And it is exciting. It's exciting to see how God snatches people from the fire of judgment. But I want you to get this before we carry on. We're thinking about the gospel tonight. The gospel makes no sense unless we see the fact that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Like the the gospel, it doesn't make any sense if we ignore that. The gospel doesn't make any sense unless we see the need that we have. Do you see the need? We stand because of our sin and we stand accused by the evil one, accused by Satan. That is an essential element of the biblical gospel of grace. So we see the crisis of iniquity. Secondly, let's think about the cleansing from wickedness that we see here, the cleansing from wickedness. Um, For many years, if you were to walk around one particular area of Edinburgh, you would almost inevitably see the same homeless guy. He was always there. You know, if you went to that area of Edinburgh, you'd always see the same homeless bloke. Now, there's nothing particularly unusual about that, I don't suppose. What was unusual about this guy, though, was the way that he was dressed. So this homeless guy was dressed smartly, really smartly. And, okay, he had been wearing those clothes for her years, you know, and they were a bit raggedy now, and they were dirty, and they were a bit 
smelly and, and all. But he was he was dressed smartly. You know, he was wearing smart shoes and a suit and a, and a, a, a nice shirt. Now, some ways you sort of think of that and is it a bit even a bit more poignant, isn't it? You know, it's kind of points to maybe what once was the guy. And we see something here very similar to that with with Joshua, don't you? I mean, he is before God. And how is he dressed? He is the high priest. I mean, he is dressed formally. I mean, he is dressed as the high priest would have been dressed. But look at the state of him. Like these garments are filthy. I mean, they are, they are dirty. They are muddied now with the sins and the iniquities of the people of God. And as I said, here in this chapter, we're going to see how God is going to, is going to sort that, resolve that, that situation of the sin. Now, what we need to see is that that rescue comes in two parts. Do you see that? Look, first of all, what does God do? He removes the filthy clothes. Look at verse 4. Verse 4. The angel says, take off his filthy clothes. And then he goes on to explain what that is. He says, I have taken away your sin. Now, surely you see what that is. I mean, surely you see what that is. That is the Lord saying that there will be a time where I am going to act and I am going to remove your clothes. I am going to bear your iniquity. So the clothes here, these filthy high priestly garments are taken off, right? So that's part of it. There is a second part of it as well, though. Now, I don't know what your social calendar is like at the moment. I don't know if you are regularly invited to parties uh, with a dress code. Does that happen? Have you? We've got some this week that you're invited to a party with a dress code. Even if this doesn't normally happen, you know how it works. You're not getting into that party unless you're appropriately attired, you know? You're not getting in unless you've got your shoes on or whatever it is, let's say, unless you're wearing a jacket or wearing a tie, something like that. You're not getting in. Much more seriously, do you realize that that is the state of affairs with glory? That's what we're dealing with, with heaven. There is no entry into glory and into the presence of God unless we are appropriately dressed. Heaven. Heaven has a dress code. Now, we, we see this in Matthew 22. You know the parable of the wedding feast? Do you remember that? Do you remember what the king says? Do you remember what the king does? The king chucks out some of these guests. Now, do you remember the reason why? Because they were not appropriately dressed for this wedding banquet. Heaven has a dress code. And do you see what that means for us here in Zechariah chapter 3? Listen to this. It means that it is insufficient if God were simply to forgive us for our sin. It is not enough if he just removes our rags of iniquity. He also has to dress us appropriately to be in his presence. John Owen says, 
he says this. He says, puts it like this. John Owen says, it is not enough that we are not guilty. We must also be dressed correctly. We must also be perfectly righteous before God. So because of that, that need to be appropriately dressed before God, I honestly think as a congregation, we should be jubilant tonight at what we read in verse 4. Because look at this. The angel doesn't just say, I have taken away your sin. That's part of it. What else does he say? He says, I will put rich garments on you. Now you see, don't you, as Christians, what's being said there, what has been pointed to, don't you? This is God showing us a time where he is going to send his son. And what is Christ Jesus going to do for us? What has he done for us? It's a time where he is going to take off, remove our garments. What will he do with those robes? Those disgusting robes. What does he do with them? He puts them on himself. He does something else though, doesn't he? He moves and clothes us with, with his perfection. With his righteousness. Do you see what we've got here? Zechariah chapter 3. We've got the great transaction. Now, let us get this right. This might sound technical, but let's get this right. This righteousness in which you are clothed if you are a Christian tonight, the righteousness is not infused into you. It is imputed to you. What's the difference there? What difference is that? Listen. It is not, as as Roman Catholic doctrine would say, it is not that God, in your sort of infant baptism, it is not that God infuses you with a certain ability to work towards a state of righteousness. Okay? That is not how this righteousness has come. Think about Joshua in this whole chapter. What does he do? He does nothing. I mean, he doesn't even speak. He barely breathes in this. No, this righteousness that you receive, it is imputed to you. It is a once and for all legal declaration. It is a moment in time where Jesus Christ, through our faith, he removes our sin. And what does he do? Instantly, he dresses us appropriately for heaven. Do you see what this is? In Zechariah chapter 3, this is double imputation. Our sin imputed to Christ. His perfection, his righteousness imputed to us. And that, that is the very beating heart of the gospel of grace. So cleansing from wickedness. Third, Note with me, a call to holiness. Now, we had some of Danica's family staying with us uh, this past week, which was great. And at one stage uh, during the week, we were all kind of gathered around the dining table having a chat. And although I did not, I, I did not start this conversation, uh, we were talking about, or they were talking about, uh, whether or not it is important for Christians to understand certain theological terms, terminologies. Our theological 
terms important or not. And I think it's probably fair to say that the conclusion that was come to was that yes, actually, that that some theological terminology is actually very, very important for Christians to know. Why? Part of the reason is that this is how God has chosen to speak to us about salvation. These are God's terms that he's given us in his, in his word. Now, what we've just looked at there in this clothing of Joshua, if you were to put a theological term on that, what would you go for? We've just seen Joshua's justification, isn't it? I mean, how he is justified before God. How he is declared righteous before... It's basically, we've just dealt with his salvation, if you like. How he will be saved. The rescue, he's, how he's justified. What we come to next, though, is this subsequent pursuit of holiness that God requires. Okay? And that, after salvation, that subsequent desire and pursuit of godliness it's of course called sanctification okay this life of righteousness pursuing pursuing righteousness after we are justified now <clears throat> in verse 7 we learn a couple of things about this life of godliness that god requires of joshua so look at verse 7 see if you notice the couple of things he requires basically he says to joshua you will experience blessing after your conversion if, one, you will walk in my ways. So that's that that's the sort of idea of God designing personal holiness from his people. You've got that. You will walk in my ways. And then two, the next one, you will receive blessing if you keep my requirements. Now, that's a much more technical idea. Really, God is saying to, to, to Joshua, you're going to receive blessing if you, in your role as high priest, if you serve properly in the temple. So do you see the two ideas? God desires personal holiness, but God also desires priestly holiness. And the next thing that I'm about to say is probably the most unfashionable thing that I could possibly say from a, a, a pulpit in the 21st century. But it's important. See this life pursuing holiness and godliness. That's part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sanctification is part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're not getting it. And we need to reclaim that. And we need to understand that the gospel does not end when we come to faith in Christ. We need to understand that the, the gospel is bigger than that. That God desires a life in the gospel, a life of pursuing righteousness and, and holiness from his, from, his, from his people. Do you see this? Do you see it's not... Christ did not just come to justify. Christ did not just come to save. Do you see that Christ came so that we would be perfected ultimately in his image? That is, that's 
Christ's design. Do you see the statement here? And it is unfashionable, and as unfashionable as it might be, do you see that even right now in here, that has implications for you and how you're living? Do you see it? It means that there are, in God's eyes, there are responsibilities for you as Christians. There's requirements on you tonight in how you are living. So, are you doing this? Are you seeking personal holiness? Could that be said of you just now at this point in your life? You know, are you, so you so your concern as you get up in the morning, how can I be faithful to God? How can I be faithful? Are you thinking about your sinfulness? Are you looking at your sin? Are you identifying those patterns of sin? Are you really, really attacking that sin? Trying to kill it? Is there personal holiness, a pursuit of that? Is there? What was the other side of it? Is there a pursuit of priestly holiness in your life? As a a member of the priesthood of all believers? Is there a real service of the people of God in the church? Is that true of you? Are you are you desperate in your spiritual life, absolutely desperate to hand over your life to God as a living sacrifice? I mean, can it actually be, be said of you? Could it be said of you that your primary, foremost concern at this point in your life is your sanctification? Because let me tell you this. What we're seeing there in Zechariah chapter 3 is the gospel is bigger than we see. It is better than we are seeing. Because what we're seeing is that not only in the gospel can we be set free from the consequences of sin, in the gospel we can be set free from the practices of sin as well. We can be justified and we can be sanctified in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so we've seen a crisis of iniquity. <coughs> we've seen the cleansing from wickedness. We've seen a call to holiness. And um, last of all, we see the clarification of justice. Clarification of justice. Are you with me? We've seen sanctification. We've seen we must pursue holiness. We're closing and we're just coming into land. I just want to go back to one thing. Now, we're going back to the idea of God's rescue from sin. And we've seen how it happens. He takes off our sin and he puts on righteousness upon us. The question is very simple. So simple. When does that take place? When does this this great rescue take place? That's it. Well, the Old Testament provides us with um, innumerable, it provides us with a plethora of prefigures of Jesus Christ. I mean, it's a gold mine. We love reading and studying the Old Testament, doesn't it? Because there's so many things in the Old Testament that point us forward to Calvary and to Jesus Christ. 
You just take, I don't know, what will we go for? Noah's Ark. And we see, yes, it's wonderful, but it points us forward to the security that Christ offers in judgment. We're amazed. It's fantastic. Now, here's the deal, though. I love, love, love Zechariah chapter 3. Why? Because here, God does not just give us a point forward and a prefigure to Jesus. God does something else. What he does here is he points us forward to Jesus and then he actually says, I am pointing you forward to Jesus. Look at this. Look at verse 8. Speak to Joshua and he says, these things that you've got here, these are symbolic or these things are types or pointers of things to come. So he's saying, what we've got here is pointing us to Jesus. Now, what is it that points us here to Christ? I ask you to do this with me just as we close. Look at verse 8 and 9. Just scan verse 8 and 9. And what I want you to do as you do that is just try and notice three images that you've got in verses 8 and 9. There's three quite grand images. Verses 8 and 9. Do you see that you've got a servant? Do you see that? You've, you, what else have you got? You've got a branch. What else have you got? And you've got a stone. Servant, branch, stone. What's that? <laughs> Think about it. The people of God, hearing from Zechariah of a servant, instantly, remember what would happen? What would they do? The people of God would instantly in their minds go to that prophecy in Isaiah of a suffering servant. They hear the word servant from God, instantly they go to a suffering servant. Now there's loads of different facets to the role of a suffering servant in Isaiah, but part of his work was to bring a message from God to the people. Now here's the crucial words that I'm going to utter. It was a prophetic work. You've got a servant. What's the next one? You've got a branch. Right? You say a branch to the people of Israel coming back from captivity. You say the word branch. What happens? Same thing. They in their minds go to Isaiah and the prophecy where God says to the people, out of the dead tree of the Davidic monarchy, I, your God, am going to launch a branch. A shoot, a new monarch is going to come. Wait a minute, what's the branch? It is a kingly figure. Prophetic figure? Kingly figure. What's the last one? Look at it. You've got a stone. Now, lots and lots have been written about this stone in Zechariah chapter 3 and the eyes on it and what these things refer to. Okay, but think about this. Given that the people of Israel have just come back into Jerusalem, and what are they doing at this precise moment? They are just about to rebuild. Given that the next chapter's theme is the temple. Given that the stone here, so large it cannot be handed to Zechariah, it must be set in front of him. What have we got? We have a temple stone, the temple cornerstone. We have a priestly 
image. Do you see what's happening here in Zechariah chapter 3? The Lord here is promising one who is going to come and rescue his people and destroy sin, one who would incorporate all three of these images, one who would be a fulfillment of the role of, yes, prophet, priest, and, and, and king, and here's my question as we end, God promises here, he says that through this one who will incorporate these roles, he says, he says this, in a single day, he will deal with the sins of the people. How, in verse 9, does he say he will do this? He says these words, I will engrave an inscription on this stone. Friends, do you see what God is pointing us to? He's pointing us to the time that Jesus Christ would come into the world. The one who would incorporate all of these roles. And, and how would he deal with sin in one day? How would he do it? He would be engraved for us. He would be permanently scarred, permanently marked for people like us. His back would be flogged and his feet would be punctured and his hands would be pierced. He's engraved. And he is engraved for us. And it is there, isn't it? It's on the, the cross that, that Jesus Christ deals with this problem. It's on the cross that he takes our sin upon himself. And he dresses us there on the cross in garments of salvation, friends. I'm saying to you tonight, don't let any of this, any of this, fall from your understanding of the gospel. All of this in Zechariah chapter 3 is just far too precious. We were lost. You and I lost in our sin. And Christ has taken that and he has dressed us and he is perfecting us. And it's all because of Calvary. All happened in the cross. I honestly believe that we should just go out of those doors and into the world tonight and we should just be singing praise to Jesus Christ. But do you see why? It's because one day what's going to happen, you and I are going to be in that heavenly courtroom. And Satan is going to look at you, the people of God, and he's going to look at you. And what does he want to do? He wants to accuse us. And what are we seeing here? Because our Lord was willing to be engraved. What will happen that day? Satan will be rendered speechless. Let's pray.